Northfield. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio each Wednesday morning to discuss national security. We're joined each week by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. Occasionally, we're joined by guests from around the world, and today is just such a day. These guests are expert in their respective areas, and we get to learn about critical topics in national security. We're bringing today a multi-part exploration of, of something called transnational organized crime, and at least that's the term that I always learned as an intelligence officer in the Navy. Uh, our guest is a globally recognized expert in, tr- in transnational organized crime, Professor Federico Verese. Federico Verese is a professor of criminology at the University of Oxford and a senior research fellow at Nuffield College in Oxford. Beginning in October of this year, he will become head of the Department of Sociology. Professor Verez's main area of research is the study of organized crime. He's written on the Russian mafia, Soviet criminal history, migration of mafia groups, Somali piracy, the dynamics of altruistic behavior, and the application of social network analysis to criminology. Currently, he's involved in research projects on the governance dimension of organized crimes in the U.K., on cybercrime markets, on the Russian mafia, and on substandard medicines. He's the author of three monographs, The Russian Mafia, Mafias on the Move, and Mafia Life, and an edited, collected uh, book called Organized Crime. His books have been translated into eight languages, and I should mention his books have also won numerous literary awards. He has published papers in numerous journals. He contributes to the Times Literary Supplement and in Italy, the Daily La Repubblica. His work has been featured in The Economist, the BBC News and World Service, ABC, The Guardian, The New York Times, and even the Freakonomics blog, among many others. Professor Vereza holds degrees from Bologna University, Cambridge University, and Oxford University. He was a prize research fellow at Nuffield College at Oxford and a visiting professor at Yale University, City University of Hong Kong, and Milan University. He is currently on the editorial board of the British Journal of Criminology and has been editor of the journal Global Crime. Professor Federico Verese, welcome to National Security This Week. John, thank you for having me. So if we could, uh, where, are, where are we talking to you from today? Where are you located? So I'm in my office uh, at the University of Oxford, in Oxford. And we catch you in the late afternoon, I take it. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's uh, 3 p.m. here. Are, are classes back in session now over at Oxford, or are you just getting ready? No, we are still on vacation, but we should resume in October as, as planned, in, with in-person meetings, mostly. All right. <laughs> so we have lots to talk about today. Uh, Federico, yeah. let's start off our discussions re- with your career. I, I just went through your, your introduction. It is an impressive uh, career. What drew you to the study of what we refer to as transnational organized crime? And, and you can correct me because I know we had some email exchanges about that term. Uh, it's a very interesting topic, and, and I, I, at least I think it's pretty fascinating. But to study it in such great, te- great detail uh, without being actually part of law enforcement is a little bit unique. Tell us about your passion for this topic. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the introduction and for the question. So I, I was an undergraduate a student um, around uh, the the late 80s, uh, very early 90s. And uh, a major event that was taking place at the 
the time in the uh, transition to the market economy and to democracy in um, in the former Soviet Union that was becoming Russia and the post-Soviet state. So I was an undergraduate at that point at the University of Bologna, and I thought, wow, this is my opportunity, it's my chance to actually witness firsthand a massive social, economic, and political transformation of a very big chunk of, of the world, which was the, for the Soviet space. So I always had an interest in the Soviet Union. I was studying a bit of Russian as an undergraduate. And so I decided to do my doctoral work. At that point, I had gone to Cambridge and then Oxford uh, on, on that topic, on the transition to the market economy in, and, polit- and, and democracy in, in Russia. Inevitably, inevitably, uh, you start off uh, thinking you are an economist or an economic <laughs> sociologist and you end up being a criminologist because <laughs> a big feature of that transition was the emergence of organized crime and, and mafia and, organized, and, and Russian mafia in particular. So that's how I, I started to, to be interested in this topic and I haven't left it ever since. And, and you are sort of considered one of the global experts on this topic, so we're very, very lucky to have you uh, with us this morning. Uh, so my good friend and your former student, uh, Professor James Densley, at, uh, here in Minnesota at Metropolitan State University, uh, it, James did research with gangs in London for his doctoral work, uh, actually hung out with gangs. Uh, how did you do your research for your book, The Russian Mafia? Did you happen to meet with and interview members of, of the Bratva? Yes, no, I, I know James' work very well, and I, I find it very interesting. Uh, and I, the kind of work I did for my own uh, doctoral thesis was very similar. So, uh, as I was telling you, I started to be very interested in Russia in the early 90s, and then I moved to Russia in the very early 90s, 92, 93, 94, and I did an ethnographic fieldwork in a Russian city, uh, which is called Perm, which is in the Ural region of Russia, the border between Russia and uh, Siberia, so Siberia and Russia. And I, yes, I did hang around in the city for overall uh, nine months. And uh, eventually I did meet uh, one of uh, so people involved in organized crime, including the boss. Uh, yes, so that's what I did. I, I found it. So I, my view is that you cannot do this kind of work without going to the places and trying to meet uh, uh, these people. So I, I talk about these encounters more broadly in my third book called The Mafia Life. So some of it was omitted from my first book. But yes, I did uh, ethnographic interviews in Russia in the 90s. That, 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 that is amazing. <laughs> I think we call that uh, qualitative uh, research. Is that right? Yes, yes. I call it rigorous ethnography. <laughs> I mean, I aspire to be rigorous. And ethnography is what we mean uh, sort of to go to the place and live there. So it's not short trips to the field as a field trip. It's more like being embedded in a, in a community. So I moved to this town and I lived there for, for a long period of time. Then, of course, I kept going back after the, the bulk of the, of the PhD research. So I kept going back until I published my book in 2001. Total immersion in the subject. Uh, that, that, that can have good, good, good and bad consequences both if you're talking about organized crime, I guess. Uh, so could I, I, I mentioned that, uh, you know, we use that term transnational organized crime uh, in our email exchanges. You, you had, a, I think, a better term uh, that you like to use. 
Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what is organized crime? What is transnational organized crime? Maybe highlight the kinds of criminal enterprises that fall under this category of criminal activity. Yes, I mean, the most boring things uh, for an audience is to hear an academic talk about concepts and uh, <laughs> and discuss concepts and disagree on concepts. That's what we do all the time. So let me say what I... Uh, what I think is uh, organized crime, and then let's get on to the topic of transnational organized crime. Okay. I, I find the, the, the concept of organized crime a bit too broad and, and rather vague. I think under this banner label, organized crime, very, very different kind of uh, enterprises or criminal groups are lumped together, especially groups that do very, very different distinguish and unpack the concept of organized crime in at least three different sub subgroups or sub concepts. There are in organized crime people who actually are engaged in the production of goods and services. So imagine, you know, you go to Colombia, there are uh, peasants ultimately on farms that farm uh, cocaine leaves that eventually are processed into, into cocaine. Mm-hmm. So that's the is really a, a kind of production or productive activity. And the people who are engaged in this kind of production are very, very different from the people who then take the goods once it's been refined. Uh, they take it abroad, so they traffic it. So for me, there is a distinction between those who are engaged in the production of the goods and services, illegal goods and services, those who are engaged in the transportation or the trading or the trafficking of those goods, which is what I would call the traffickers. And then thirdly, and I'll be very, tell me if it's unclear, there is a third type of people, again, who are very, very different in terms of background, in terms of skills, from these two categories, production and trade. And the third kind of people are those who govern, who protect, who have, who have a very kind of state-like function in, uh, in the underworld. And these are what I would call a mafia or a governance structure. So, the kind of work I've done until now, mostly, mostly, not all, but mostly it's about the third kind of people, and that's what I call the mafia. So the mafia is not just a group of individuals who are engaged in uh, production or selling or you know pushing drugs on the streets. They are those who give you permission to do so. Mm. So if you want to um, sell or if you want to produce uh, some criminal illegal goods, you have to ask their permission. And ultimately, they give, they tax you. So that, to me, is a very different function from those who actually engage in the production. And when you look at it, you actually find out that the people are very different. So those who are engaged in one kind of activity are not engaged in the other. That's a very short answer, I think, trying to give you a sense of what I mean and what I meant in my emails to you earlier. Uh, and I, th- I find that uh, that breakdown incredibly interesting. So what you're really saying is that uh, kind of that organized crime, that third group, uh, they, they are the ones who are sort of the business uh, the business part of the operation. They're controlling the whole uh, supply chain, and they, they also provide sort of the rules of the road as to what is allowed and what is not allowed, and they enforce those rules, uh, which is part of why we understand organized crime to be somewhat a, a violent uh, uh, enterprise at times. Is that a good summary? Yes, especially the part when you say that they enforce the rules. So they are not the business people in themselves. They are those who give the rules to the business people. So there is a very clear distinction between those who 
are in the business and those who are in uh, in the protection uh, <laughs> in the protection field as it were so for me they are the state ultimately they are a proto quasi state form that uh, makes the underground economy actually work better from their point of view because if you have a dispute you know uh, somebody who sells the drugs and somebody who buys the drugs they have a dispute over the quality or the goods never arrived well if there is a mafia around you turn to them as a third party enforcer of the deal so yes the, to me uh, and that's what i find particularly fascinating about this third category is that they are a proto state and they have uh, elements of state functions and, and and also they have rules they have uh, a ideology they have all kind of things that look very similar to to the state so in a sense uh, it allows us to study key elements of state behavior in a very small setting as, as if you know you are a darwin who goes to the galapagos and sees the beginning of uh, the evolution of what then becomes the official state All right. Uh, we have to take just a, a quick break here, uh, Federico. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. And we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Federico Varese, and we're discussing transnational organized crime. Uh, so, Professor, I'd like to dive a little deeper uh, into some of the organized crime enterprises around the world today. If I throw some group names at you, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about them. And one of the things that, that just popped into my head as you were just explaining uh, in your answer to the last question, my guess is is that each of these groups uh, sort of has created their own culture as part of the rules uh, that they that they enforce. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So let's start off with the one that you're most, uh, most familiar with, and, and that's the Russian Mafia. Uh, what can you tell us specifically about the Russian Mafia, how they're organized, uh, what they focus on for their criminal enterprises, and maybe a little bit about their culture? Yes, no, with, with great pleasure. So what is the Russian Mafia really? The Russian Mafia is uh, um, a collection of bosses who go by the Russian name of uh, Vori Zakonye. Vori Zakonye. So in Russian, the word Vor means a thief, And Zakon means the law. So this uh, is the name they give to themselves. And it means uh, criminal, of course, not just a thief, but in general, a criminal who follows the law, who follows the law. So they're not just, uh, you know, the point here again is not they are just thugs who steal and rob. They are criminals that follow a code of honor. You know, that's what that's the name, the Russian mafia. Okay. Now, how did they emerge? Well, they emerge in the at the time of the revolution, of the Russian Revolution, and the, in the turmoil of the Russian Revolution in the gulag system, in the prison system. So you see very early on, at the beginning of the late 10s, early, early 20s, uh, 1920s, you have um, uh, already people who are commenting and reporting, people who have been in prison, reporting on this criminal fraternity that has emerged in the Gulag system. They have a ritual of admission. They, most importantly, uh, have tattoos on their body. And the body uh, becomes a canvas on which they tell and they write their criminal history. So, you, I don't know, again, if you take my book, Mafia Life, I've got some of these photos. And these are um, very painfully done tattoos by hand in which they have images of, uh, of Christianity to a great extent and also the history of the criminal 
a fraternity and a criminal career in a sense. So when they are promoted, they get a new tattoo. So this is the, the tattoos. They have a set of rules that are enforced at the, and, and, and said at the ritual. And that's how they emerged. They were repressed, of course, during the Soviet period. There was a particular order to kill them in 1938. So quite uh, almost 70 of them were killed in just one go. And then uh, they sort of survive uh, uh, within the Gulag system. And by the end of the Soviet Union, they, they grew in number and, and then left the, the Soviet the Gulag system, which came to an end and entered uh, Russian society in a much bigger way than they had done during the Soviet period. So this is, to me, is what the Russian mafia is. They are uh, present outside the borders of current Russia. They are in particular in Greece, there are quite a big uh, community of these people in Spain. And of course, uh, you might find them, some of them also in, in, in the U.S. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so how about next we talk about uh, the Italian and, and Sicilian uh, mafia, and, and, and they're obviously resident in Italy, Sicily. And we have had a, a tradition of that here in the United States as well. Yes, so the Sicilian Mafia is obviously uh, the one uh, we know best, I suspect, and it's most famous. Uh, it emerged, again, the Sicilian mafiosis think the Sicilian Mafia emerged uh, centuries ago, but if you look at the record, the first time we hear of its existence is around uh, 1838. So there is a report by a, a police officer that really describes the Mafia as we know it now. How, what is the Sicilian Mafia? is a collection of uh, crime families, uh, which they have a ritual and a set of rules. And what is extraordinary is that all of this, uh, that the ritual and the rules are shared across these uh, uh, families, which are around 70s in the island of Sicily, of Western Sicily only. And they emerge at the time of the transition to the market economy in Sicily, when feudalism came to an end and uh, there was widespread uh, absence of state protection, local new reformed businesses needed protection to bring the goods from the interior of the island to the markets on the coast, such as Palermo, of course. And so the proto-mafia emerged to protect the, the carriages or the convoys from the interior to the, to the market. It, it exists to these days. Uh, it's, uh, it used to be extremely involved in international drug trafficking in the 80s, especially, uh, that has come to an end. And so, the, the, if you wish, the power has diminished, but they're still very strong and very uh, well-rooted in, in parts of Western Sicily, Palermo, uh, Caltanisetta, so the western part of the island, more than the eastern part of the island. Uh, these are the, the Sicilian guys. Now, um, <laughs> You also asked me about the, the American yeah. cousins, right? Yeah. So the American cousins, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon because um, there was a point in which um, there was massive repression of the, uh, of the Sicilian mafia during fascism. But also, of course, before that, there was massive migration of people from Western Sicily to, to North America, but also to Latin America and to, say, to Argentina, for instance. Now, within this, um, this uh, migration and also within the repression of the Sicilian mafia during fascism, a number of bosses or people in the Sicilian mafia moved to the U.S., uh, not because they wanted to colonize the U.S., but simply because they were escaping repression or poverty. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, 
they were hanging around doing not very much in terms of mafia <laughs> activities until really prohibition set itself on and that they became extremely powerful and what I would call a proper mafia by the time of prohibitions in the 1920s in the U.S. And they are mainly present in the eastern side of the U.S., of course, New York, Buffalo, upper state of New York, but there are, of course, families also in Florida and in sure. Los Angeles. Okay. How about, uh, and you may, I mean, you probably know some about these, but how about the the Japanese Yakuza? Well, again, it's um, it's... Um, it's really fascinating that the Japanese Yakuza emerged roughly at the same time as the Sicilian mafia in the 19th century and roughly through a very similar process. Namely, namely Japan, like Sicily, uh, went through a very rapid uh, end of feudalism. So the old feudal lords lost their power and the land they used to control became privatized. And so you could actually buy and sell private land and become an entrepreneur, an agricultural entrepreneur around the mid 1800s. And so again, the state was very slow and behind the curve in protecting the new property rights. And uh, uh, association of self-help that then become the Yakuza emerged around that time. I should say that what is peculiar about the, the, the Japanese mafia is that it was, um, until very recently, in effect, legal. So it was not illegal to join the Japanese Yakuza, contrary, of course, to the Sicilian case, or the Russian mafia now in Russia. So the, the numbers of members of the Japanese Yakuza is extraordinarily high. It used to be in the region of 80,000 members. Now it's gone down. The latest estimates is around 25,000. But still, it's a massively high number compared to Sicilians or, or Russians, which are more in the thousands. Um, so that is a feature of, this, of the Japanese Yakuza. And also, also you would see that they are famous for their elaborate tattoos. Right. Uh, and also, they, as a punishment, of course, they would cut the fingers of, of, of those members who, pan, who were found to be guilty of some sort of misdemeanor in the organization. So you might see, if you see a very big man heavily tattooed with... Uh, his little finger missing, you can guess he's in the Yakuza. And, and that he has violated a rule at some point and had to pay for it with cutting off parts of his fingers. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, only two more groups I'd like to bring up. Uh, let's, let's move next to the Chinese triads. Uh, what can you tell us about the Chinese triads? Yes, I think uh, I think the, the key point about the Chinese triads is that they're actually in Hong Kong, right? They, they are based in Hong Kong, and uh, again, uh, um, amazingly enough, they emerge as an organized group uh, in the 19th century. So it's a long story, but the, the basic story is that there is a lot of turmoil in China and, and political turmoil as well in the 19th century, attempts to overthrow the, the regime. And many of these people escaped to Hong Kong and they had joined in China secret society. So they come to Hong Kong, they've got this uh, secret membership, uh, but then in Hong Kong, they start to become um, criminalized, and they are mainly involved in uh, in managing the labor market and the so-called, mm. well, as you know, there is a very offensive word which has emerged from the time in English called the coolies, which means that Chinese workers were 
in effect enslaved and sent to work both to the United States, as you know, and also to Latin America. So these gangs at the time were organizing this market in a, in a criminal way, a market which was not regulated. So that was how they emerged. By 1909, they had settled on a set of rules and rituals across the Hong Kong and, uh, and thrived, really. And they control uh, local prostitution. They control um, the, the bus, the, the mini buses in Hong Kong. Uh, and they also are involved in, in the film industry and in gambling, especially. So you find groups of Chinese triads in Hong Kong and also in Macau that uh, used to control the, some of the casinos. Now, much less, I should say. Are they also heavily involved nowadays in human trafficking? Not so much, not so much. Okay. So, um, again, uh, not, not something I studied directly, but I read uh, colleagues who uh, make the point that um, most of the migrations and illegal migration and human trafficking coming out of China actually comes out of China, not of Hong Kong. And oh. so it's really different gangs in mainland China, especially in uh, Fujian uh, region that are involved in uh, human smuggling or trafficking. Okay. So. I should say that the Chinese um, triads based in Hong Kong are very localized. They are very much localized and they control local businesses, really extortion. Uh, so I think most of the migrants come legally to the US and also to this country uh, actually come from mainland China and bypass Hong Kong. Okay. And then the last group I'd like to bring up are, are the Mexican cartels. What can you tell us about uh, sort of their culture, their business model, uh, their hierarchy? Yes, the, the Mexican cartels, um, they, so the story is that uh, massive, uh, massive dr drugs trafficking uh, in the 80s was coming from Colombia, of course, mm -hmm. which was the place where cocaine is produced. And, um, and the Mexican groups were really uh, very insignificant. And most of the drugs, as you know, was coming through Florida. Now, once that route was closed down by the American government, and the, the route then was pushed on land, on land, so Mexico becomes much more relevant because the Florida route has been shut down. You remember the submarine stories right. of cartels that not going to happen anymore because the, the Americans prevent that. So then Mexico becomes the entry point of drugs into the U.S., and these are mainly cocaine. So at that point, the... The, the Colombians uh, to team up with the cartels in Mexico, all the criminals in Mexico, to ensure that the drugs come in. But over time, the Mexicans become more powerful than the, than the Colombians and uh, develop, become, in a sense, their own, their own people and import the drugs and then they export them back into, into the U.S., but they've also have evolved into, into controlling uh, territories. They're extremely violent, mm. and uh, there are an estimate of 100,000 members of the cartels. But what is most extraordinary, I should say, is the amount of people that died in the cartel wars in, uh, in Mexico. So, rough, again, estimates are hard to, to come by, but there are scholars who try to keep up, and the estimates is that from 2006 to today, some 350,000 people died in the, oh. as a consequence of uh, organized crime 
uh, wars within Mexico. Uh, so that is extremely um, sad and, and, and dangerous. There is the group called Zetas, as you know, mm-hmm. used to be members of the, of the Mexican army that uh, sort of went to the other side and became a cartel in their own right. And so now the cartels of Mexico, the so-called cartels, actually they don't just uh, push drugs into the U.S., they also... Uh, control human trafficking across the border, as well as controlling the, the territory of Mexico as well and, and extorting business a, as a traditional mafia would do. Yeah. Uh, so I think what what I've heard in our discussion so far is that there's a lot of different uh, kind of business models across these different uh, organized crime groups. Uh, I, I happen to be a little bit aware that uh, the Sinaloa cartel amongst the Mexican cartels was somewhat unique in that they were totally vertically integrated uh, from the from the production of drugs to the smuggling of drugs to the distribution of drugs, uh, and they are actually up here in Minnesota one of the more powerful organized crime entities uh, dealing drugs even in Minnesota. Uh, do you see that total vertical integration amongst uh, many of the organized crime groups around the world, or is that sort of a unique uh, business model to Sinaloa? Um, yes, so Sinaloa is where Chapo Guzman, right, right. Uh, was, was uh, El Chapo, was, and he's now in prison in the U.S. At, at least for now, until he until he burrows his way out of our prisons. <laughs> yes, I think it would be harder. I should say uh, quite hard. You're referring to the fact that he escaped twice before right. from high security prisons in Mexico. Yeah. But I, I think it would be harder for him to escape from the U.S. one. Um, so I, I don't know about the um, vertical integration. I think uh, it may be a, uh, it may be a, a perception of of, uh, of of vertical integration. I think there is quite a clear distinction of of division of labor. Okay. So those who are uh, on the uh, on the on the ground to produce the drugs are very different from those who export it and those who, who, who protect it. So I think that. Tra- I think all the names that we named so far, you know, that you in the list that you made, I think that the essence of all of those groups is the protection or the governance function, as opposed to the uh, production and the and the trading or the exporting of goods. Of course, they might take an interest in making sure the production works. As much as uh, a state would ensure that, uh, you know, healthcare is delivered in a sense, so you have. A, control and an interest in that. But I think there is a distinction and division of labor and, and uh, uh, as opposed to um, people doing everything or being fully integrated. Uh, so we, we have only covered a, a very small slice of uh, all the different organized crime groups that there are around the world. But I'm going to put you on the spot, Professor, and I'm going to ask you uh, if you had to rank the top three most dangerous uh, transnational organized crime syndicates uh, what would those three organizations be? Uh, yeah, I thought you were going to ask me that. <laughs> and uh, I I picked up my own book where I cite um, a, US, uh, a U.S. document from the Obama administration from 2012. <laughs> and according to the Obama administration, so I'll cite them first, if you allow me for a second. Absolutely. Uh, they, they designated the Russian mafia, so the people I was talking earlier, the Vori, uh, as one of the transnational organized groups that pose the, the greatest threat to the U.S. So the Vori, my guys, the Russian mafia is there, uh, according to the Obama administration, uh, as well as the Neapolitan Camorra, which we didn't touch upon, yeah. uh, the Japanese Yakuza, the Mexican Los Zetas, which we did mention, 
the MS-13 uh, gang. So these are the ones that are the most, uh, the most sort of the biggest threat to American security. I suppose it depends what we mean by the biggest threat or the most important. I should say that for me, they're all uh, pretty nasty <laughs> and they're all a threat. Uh, it depends to whom. Uh, so uh, let's say the Sicilian mafia is certainly in decline and so is the Italian-American mafia in the US. But the Sicilian mafia is in decline and yet they still pose a huge threat to the people in that part of the world. So if by, if by threat we mean those who have the greatest international uh, dimension, i.e. they are involved in several markets, in several countries, certainly among the Italian ones, and one we didn't mention is called the Calabresi Andrangheta, which I think that is highly international because they are involved in the drugs trade. Okay. Uh, so that to me is up there, I think, or should be up there as an international um, dimension. As you can see, I resist uh, to answer your question directly, <laughs> but the, the Calabrese Andrangheta is certainly up there. The, certainly the Mexican story is extraordinary. It's yeah. extraordinary and, and it's terrifying in terms of the death toll that they have uh, yeah. produced on their people. But certainly the cartels in Colombia are also extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. So it really depends what we mean by threat. I think uh, they all pose a threat. It just depends uh, of which kind. Sure. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Federico Varese, and we're discussing transnational organized crime. Uh, so, Professor, I'm going to change gears a little bit and move away from the uh, from the mafia discussions and, and into the sort of the international law enforcement uh, side of this. Um, I'm assuming that you're pretty familiar with uh, the international law enforcement uh, cooperation that's working to combat these transnational organized crime syndicates. Is that uh, is that a correct assessment on my part? Well, we'll see. That's okay. That's the question is <laughs> all right. Fair enough. I uh, know something. Yes. What can you tell us about international cooperation among governments uh, combating these groups? Uh, for instance, how well does the UK and Italy work together, or or Russia and Japan as examples? Uh, and, and, and the floor is yours on this topic. Yes, um, so this is not something I study directly, uh, but I am uh, aware of uh, a few aspects of the of the story. So, for instance, uh, in in Europe, uh, in Europe, uh, we have uh, uh, the European Union, of course, of which the UK was part of until recently, until it recently left. Mm-hmm. And the European Union had uh, a very good uh, cooperation, uh, international cooperation within Europe, well, not only within Europe. Uh, based on the principle that uh, if organized crime uh, crosses borders, so do we need to cross borders and have international cooperation. So that's the principle thinking. The the European Union has got something called Eurojust, which is a a body to organize uh, investigations across borders within the European Union, of which the UK, of course, was a full member. And the US had... uh, seat at this um, committee as a a member. So it was very important that the U.S. was part of it, Colombia was part of it, and that was extremely helpful uh, because it allowed um, prosecutors to coordinate. I mean, I can tell you more, but I think it was a very very useful body. Um, Something else we have in Europe is the European arrest warrant. So you obviously appreciate the fact that jurisdictions are different in Europe. So the kind of legal system is very different. The UK is based on common law. 
the, you know, uh, other parts of Europe are based on, on Roman law, on, 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 on statutes and criminal codes. And so the, and also the, there is no necessarily homogeneity over this, but the European arrest warrant allowed people to be extradited, even though they might not be exactly the same crime in both legislation uh, jurisdiction. So that also was extremely helpful, and it allowed uh, people who had moved to the UK in order to escape justice from Italy, let's say, uh, to, um, to be sent back after the introduction of the uh, European arrest warrant in 2006. Now, with the departure of the UK from the European Union, obviously that has weakened because that, uh, all of that is gone for the UK. Um, also, the, the access to uh, European-wide databases is, is now much more difficult for the United Kingdom, especially at the border. Mm-hmm. And so before, as you cross the border into the UK, they could immediately look you up and, and, um, and that would be very easy to then to spot people who are moving around. Now it's a more convoluted uh, system. So we, we left the European Union uh, and I think that there is a risk that cooperation will be harder. I, I think, it's, I mean, not the risk, unfortunately, it will certainly be harder. And we also left the European arrest warrant. Um, so that, that is uh, something I can tell you for sure about the the EU. Now, I know that there is very strong cooperation between Italy and the US in the fight against um, Italian mafias on both sides of the Atlantic. And so I think that is working really well. Um, uh, that's, I think, where I end in terms of uh, good news. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, do you see any, any serious impediments to uh, international law enforcement cooperation in, in trying to police these uh, transnational criminal enterprises? Anything that really prevents them from working well and efficiently together? Yes, obviously, obviously geopolitics plays a role. We have to be absolutely aware of that. So if there is political tensions between one country and another, or one group of countries and another country, uh, obviously the cooperation on other matters will suffer. Uh, not, not immediately, not so directly, but I think it's very hard for cooperation to take place across geopolitical tension. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is absolutely uh, the key point, uh, I think. Uh, the other, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the main problem. Obviously, uh, the, so, so the, the Palermo Convention, it's very helpful. Uh, the, the UN has done a lot of work in keeping the communication going across police forces around the world. Um, the instruments are obviously a bit vague. You know, the definition of organized crime is three or four people get together and commit a crime, <laughs> which is serious. That's more or less the definition of organized crime. So obviously any kind of criminal activity, almost criminal activity, can go under that. And of course, some political um, political this is, this is political opposition may be labeled as organized crime, making it harder uh, to cooperate on the real threat. So I think that is... Uh, that is um, an issue. There is, of course, the problem of cybercrime, which is uh, also something I study. I've studied recently. And uh, the problem is that uh, cyber criminals um, operate out of some countries in the physical space as opposed to just the cyber. So we tend to think that cybercrime is, is an online problem, but it's also an offline problem because the criminals actually exist as human beings. And often they hide in jurisdictions which are very hard to reach. Right. Um, so that, I think that's another problem. And and, and you mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago the challenges when, when you have uh, uh, geopolitical tensions 
uh, interfering in international cooperation uh, dealing with uh, organized crime. So, for instance, the United States does not have great relations right now with either Russia or China. And we know that there are some significant uh, cyber criminal uh, enterprises going on amongst those organized crime groups in, in, in Russia and China. We're probably in the United States not getting top-level cooperation with the Russian and Chinese governments to deal with uh, that particular part of organized crime. Is that is that a good assessment? Well, I <laughs> I have great respect for uh, for all the countries you mentioned, but so I leave that assessment to you. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, so, Professor, we we don't have that much time left. Uh, I do want to touch on one thing before we close out. Uh, one thing that I that I did not mention in your intro. Uh, regarding her books on organized crime, uh, the very famous late author of spy novels, Jean Le Carré, uh, wrote about you stating, Federica Varese is two writers rolled into one, a fearless fact hunter who goes after his quarry with the zeal of a thoroughbred journalist and a dedicated academic who examines and analyzes his catch with relentless detachment. Throw in a robust understanding of the impact of contemporary history on the behavior of a globalized criminal underworld, and you have both a compelling read and an impeccable work of, of reference. So that's that's pretty high praise. Uh, a lot of people who listen to the show, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, the author, Jean Le Carré. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your relationship with him? Uh, and that, of course, is his pen name. Uh, you know him by his true name. Yes, yes. So I met... Um, David Cornwell, who is the real name of, of the author John Le Carré in the 90s, when I was working on my book, The Russian Muffin, doing my ethnography in Russia, and he was writing a book called Our Game. And so I remember being in Russia and receiving, through a quite roundabout way, my mail that arrived at my Oxford College, and it was somehow shipped to this quite far away place in, in, in Russia. And among the letters, you know, the bills and the library books that I had to return, there was a letter from John Le Carré, which I thought, wow, that either is a joke or it's a great honor. And, uh, and so when I came back, it, I got to meet him and we worked together on, um, on a novel he was eventually publishing called Our Game, which is a novel based about post-Soviet uh, post-Soviet Russia. So from that collaboration, uh, which of course he, he thanks me and acknowledged me really generously in his books, uh, we continue to be in touch. I grew very fondly of him and his family, his wife, Jane, and his, his children. And we collab I collaborated on some TV projects, on The Night Manager. Mm -hmm. I collaborated on a book called um, Our Kind of Traitor, which is also again about Russia. And I found him an extremely fascinating person, a great writer, of course, uh, a very fair and a very intelligent, extremely curious and uh, in, keen to learn and keen to get the details of his uh, narratives as accurate as possible. Of course, then he would write a fictional story around those uh, facts, but I was very impressed by his dedication to details and his uh, passion for for getting it right. He was a great man, and I'm, I really miss him. And unfortunately, his wife also died shortly after him, and with whom he collaborated um, in, the, you know, in, in writing. Uh, I mean, he, she, he, she helped him greatly, as you can see from the archives that are now deposited here in Oxford. So it's a great loss for, for me, and I think for many other people. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I always enjoyed reading his novels. 
Uh, so, Professor, what what are you researching right now? Since you don't have classes until October, you probably have a lot of time on your hands. Uh, anything we should know about? Anything special that you're researching right now? Um, well, uh, actually, as we speak, uh, I'm reading theses by others <laughs> okay. as a supervisor. Uh, and so it's part of the academic jobs that you actually don't have all that much time to research. But I have just won um, a big grant from the European Union. Uh, and so uh, this grant is what will you know, take my time for the next five years. And it's a grant uh, where I try to... Um, in a sense, to flesh out what we talked about, this new concept of what is organized crime uh, along the lines that we discussed, and of course give a flesh to that conceptual architecture by studying several countries. I have projects to go to to Latin America, to some European countries, uh, hopefully back to Russia. Um, so that's that's what I, I plan to do. But, you know, watch this space. I hope it will produce books recently. I mean, shortly at least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so last question. Uh, what What else? I mean, we've talked about a lot, but I'm sure there are many, many things uh, linked to transnational organized crime we have not discussed. Is there anything else you think our listeners should know about this topic of uh, transnational organized crime? Well, um, well, I think we covered a lot. I, I think... Uh, um, so to me, to me, probably what is important to remember is that the organizations we discussed have, um, have a sense of identity, have a sense of, of an ideology, I would say. So they are not just about the crime or just about the business or the money. They certainly they are, there is, the money is a major issue, but they, they join these organizations because they think they join something which is bigger than them and mm. they somehow believe into that mission or ideology. Of course, there is a lot of pretending and a lot of cheating within these organizations. But I think if you want to fully understand them, we need to understand that they're not just about any other crime. They are a special sort of criminal organizations, which I call the mafias, with a, a sense of uh, belonging uh, and an investment that goes beyond the pure the, the pure money dimension. That's why they are harder to fight. I, my, my, I would imagine that there's a certain level of meritocracy that's uh, exercised inside those uh, mafia groups. Uh, and if you do well, they promote you. If you don't do so well, uh, maybe you find yourself uh, buried somewhere, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There is a career path, and uh, and uh, in uh, you, you wouldn't progress through the career path if you are uh, crazy. So one of the things that these groups don't particularly like is people who are uh, nuts, you know, who are, who are <laughs> crazy on, on violence. They find that extremely dangerous. This is the, the organizations are not a place for people who enjoy killing other people. They are, in fact, they try to use as little violence as they can. Of course, they are ready to use them and are very violent if they need to. Mm-hmm. But I think the organizations are more successful, like the Sicilian Mafia, for instance. They certainly uh, frowned upon people who are um, just uh, bloodthirsty criminals. Yeah. Well, that unfortunately uh, brings us to the end of our show today. Uh, Professor Federico Varese, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. My pleasure. 
Uh, so that closes this week's edition. Uh, we're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Uh, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to our show again at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning, and I hope you'll join us again. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.